You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And in this episode, we are discussing in depth the season four finale of Orphan Black from dancing mites to psychopaths. And while this episode will contain spoilers for the finale, there will be no spoilers for future episodes because nobody knows anything at this point. (laughs) I think the writer's room just convened to start talking about season five. Let's get started with some feedback that we got from listeners about the finale as a whole. From Victor, he said, Although season four was much better than season three, this last episode suffered from middle book syndrome, like the movie Empire Strikes Back. That was a very good movie, but it ended with the good guys in their worst situation yet, and then we had to wait forever for the next installment. And I I agree. I feel like this is maybe the result of the fact that I think they probably knew they were going to get five seasons and that'd be it. So it feels like they were planning for season five with this finale. I agree. Yeah. Because it was. It was extra cliffhangery. And I think during the last, I don't know, 15 minutes of the episode, I kept checking the time. Like, there can't only be this much time left. They can't, they can't fix this in this little time. Mm-hmm. And then they left it with me still saying that. <laughs> Victor went on to say, Now as for Rachel, if anyone still believes that woman is capable of redemption or that she will join Clone Club, or even that she has so much as a single shred of humanity in her, then I have this bridge in Brooklyn I would like to sell you. And <laughs> I wanted to follow that up with a, a response that we got from Fred, who in between episodes 9 and 10 had sent us an email about how he, he thinks he might have become a Rachel fan subsequent to her actions in episode nine, but he sent a a follow-up email saying, and let me rephrase my statement from the last episode. I declare myself from now on as an official Rachel fan too. I declare myself from now on as an official Tatiana playing Rachel fan. (laughs) Fred is not going to be buying that bridge, Victor. (laughs) No, sorry. You you don't have a seller or a buyer there, but (laughs) I think that's a better distinction to make Fred. Yes. Victor has strong feelings about Rachel. Yes, Victor does not like Rachel. Which is understandable, but anyway. It is understandable, especially after this episode. Oh my gosh. Uh, Rachel. She's evil. She's she's <laughs> back to just being completely evil again. But what's interesting in this episode is that Rachel is the one getting her hands dirty in this episode, which I don't think we've ever seen before. Are you talking in regards to violence? The fact that really, really brutal scene? I am. I am talking about literally dirty from blood. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That is new from her. Usually she has other people doing that work for her in the past, such as Ferdinand, calling in Ferdinand to clean up Clone Club. Ferdinand and Daniel and then Paul for a while. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. But speaking of Ferdinand, we finally got to see their dynamic. Which was interesting. It really, really was. It hadn't really occurred to me that this was really the first time we'd seen the real Rachel and Ferdinand together, but it, it was. And I, I quite liked their scenes together, actually. This was, it was before Rachel went completely evil and, you know, called the board meeting, et cetera. So I still had remnants of like some sympathy for her. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> when she was talking to Ferdinand, because there was that moment when they, I think it was like their second scene together after he showed up, and he was clearly there for a booty call, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure and then business, Rachel. Yes. and she, But she has that moment where she she says to him, I'm not the same. My 
infirmities, I don't feel much of anything anymore. And she gets a little teary about it. And I was kind of like, oh, Rachel. But <laughs> Which, again, lasted for, like, just that scene. Just that scene. Or really just that moment, you know? <laughs> That's true. Right after that, things get a little kinky. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually was kind of fun. <laughs> Is that weird I actually to say? kind of agree with you, yeah. It was kind of fun. It's It's been surprising how much fun Ferdinand has been this season. <laughs> well, because it's one of those things, like, Ferdinand is so clearly enjoying himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're kind of like, oh, okay. Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, because I, I wanted to, to clarify here, because we had established that we had problems with Rachel and Paul back in season two. And this is the other side of that, because Ferdinand is clearly into it. They're more of equals. So, like, this I don't have a problem with. And they have a previous r- arrangement, you know, we know that they have a safe word. You know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, this is a, a very different type of scene than what we saw between Rachel and Paul. Yep. I I kind of felt two ways about it, though, because, like, I, en- I actually enjoyed the kind of BDSM scenes between Ferdinand and Rachel in this episode. Again, I thought they were kind of fun, which was, like, refreshing to see in a way. And it was also refreshing the fact that Rachel's a character with a physical disability, and we see her kind of engaging in some sexual activity. I'm honestly, I don't know enough about BDSM to know if that quite qualifies. So please forgive me if I'm if I'm stating that incorrectly. But even to see like a character with a physical disability kind of stripped down in her underwear, that's not something we see very much on TV and in movies. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like yay for those things. But on the other hand, it's like why is it that the evil Claude who turns on all of her sisters? Why do they have to be the one who engages in BDSM? Because the BDSM community gets such a negative representation at BDSM. Yeah. So I kind of felt two ways about it, but generally I enjoyed the scenes. That's fair. But that was the end of my enjoying Rachel's presence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's fair also. Yeah. (laughs) Subsequently, she goes full on evil Rachel, and I just I just want to reach through the screen and just shake her by the shoulders and be like, why are you so terrible? (laughs) (laughs) It's a completely reasonable response, because yeah, that's she goes Storming into the boardroom, and for a second, it's kind of awesome. Yeah. Because, like, oh, Rachel's back. Mm-hmm. She's She's got her power back. But then she's like, if we want to find out what happens when we, when a, uh, and now I've just completely forgotten the, the quote. <laughs> the lab rat and cutting off the tail. and Oh, yeah. If we want to see if our lab rat's tails grow back, then we will cut them off and see, I think is what she says. She's terrifying in that scene, is She's my point. She's terrifying. But I loved how they chose to begin that sequence because they have her being revealed through this, like, double-layer elevator door where I think it opens first up and down, and then the door is open left to right, and then she walks through. I thought that was great. I love that visual image of her, like, her, her entry back into cutthroat business world tactics. Right. There's probably a, a GIF on Tumblr somewhere. Yes, should find it and reblog it. But I thought that her plan was really quite intriguing because her pitch to the board, because they, they essentially say like, okay, yeah, you're promising that we'll see these results in our lifetime. That's exactly what Evie Cho said. And she makes the point that Evie had no baseline for whatever genetic type of modification she was trying to do. Whereas Susan Duncan with the clones has built up years of data. And so they have a baseline. And, you know, could have been looking at how putting the same genetic material into these different wombs, how that has affected the clone. So they have a baseline and then they can use 
Evie chose tech to do the sort of genetic uh, manipulations, I guess, quickly. Mm -hmm. So basically, Rachel's pitch is these other people only want to do the one thing or the other thing. Go with me and I'll do both. Yes. It was a great line. Again, evil. But I have to admire her, her phrasing of it. She says, Evie had no baseline and Susan has no balls. Rachel may be evil, but she's very well-spoken. Very well-spoken. <laughs> Again, she has, you know, she has strengths. She usually uses them for evil purposes, but they're there. That statement that she makes about Susan having no balls, I think it's reflected on again subsequently when Rachel goes and she's talking to Susan after she's gone to the board. And Susan makes the point that, you know, Rachel says she's making the harder choices. But Susan's perspective is that restraint is the harder choice. But Rachel counters with, no, the future is bolder than you. And I don't know who I agree with necessarily in Susan and Rachel's argument. Like, obviously, I think human experimentation generally is wrong and don't do it. But when it comes to, say, they were doing experiments on not humans, they were doing things more by the book. This question of, you know, restraint versus making bold choices, like, which is the better move? I'm not entirely sure that I know. Which, I mean, that's sort of the deal with the show, right? Mm-hmm. Same idea, two different tactics of exploring, like, an idea or a, a philosophy leads to different ends. And that's, that's we see that explored throughout the show in various ways. I do have to mention before we, we keep going here, there's that scene earlier in the episode where she's talking to Sarah on the phone. And, hello, Sarah. And then, whack. <laughs> whacks the she egg. whacks that egg right open. That was that was such a magnificent, just so such a Rachel movement, and I really want to know if that was scripted or if Tatiana thought of that, if the director thought of that. But that was just brilliant. But like, oh, the symbolism. Mm -hmm. And something that I noticed, which may need me nothing, and I think there's a dozen practical reasons why this is the case, but I wanted to point it out, and I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts. When we see Rachel you know, moving around in the business world, doing what she's doing. She wears primarily like a black suit with a white blouse, and she's wearing a white coat over her black suit. But then when we see her return to Neolution Island, and she's walking back into Susan's house, she is wearing the opposite. She's wearing like a, a white long tunic and a black overcoat. Honestly, the, the, the answer might just be Rachel was about to get bloody, and they wanted the image of all the blood on the white tunic. But I'm wondering if the that shift in her wardrobe was trying to convey something else about her character. I mean, I noticed the black and white ensembles also. The thing that struck me walking into the house on Neolution Island was that, like, you notice she and Ira and Susan all were wearing white or light gray or, you know, it was always in that color tone. Mm -hmm. and, and the house is all in that color tone. Yeah. That same color palette is what I should say. So walking in with the black overcoat especially was really visually striking and visually different than it had been. Like, it, it signals that shift. Mm -hmm. Rachel doesn't belong here anymore, I guess, maybe. Hmm. Or maybe not that she doesn't belong here, but she doesn't belong with them anymore. I was going to make a joke about maybe it's just the wardrobe regulations for the Illusion Islands. Because, yeah, they wear a lot of freaking white in Susan Duncan's house. Yep. I love somebody, you shared a Tumblr post with me at the end of episode 
eight, I believe, when Cosima was headed out to Neolution Island and something about how <laughs> her jewel tones were going to interrupt the monochromatic <laughs> world in there. <laughs> but it was just interesting to me because she was wearing black for almost every other scene she was in, except for those few where she came back and then stabbed Susan and then the fight with Sarah. But you notice even that white tunic had black accents on it. Yes, so. and she was wearing black slacks with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to point out, since we're talking about color scheme here, you notice the board that she met with. Pretty much all of those people are in grays and light blues. Mm-hmm. Sort of, again, picking up on these, the subconscious signals of the color palettes. Yeah. The fact that Rachel was wearing white, I think, also is striking visually in the fight with Sarah, because Sarah, as is her way, is wearing, I think, all black. So we have this, our black-clad sympathetic character being attacked by a white-clad evil villain, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, usually when they do that, it's basically just signaling opposition. Yeah, exactly. You know, in case you didn't pick up on it from the fact that she whacked her on the head with her cane. Yeah, in case she didn't realize. (laughs) (laughs) It was very subtle, I know. Though, speaking of the Cade and uh, the similarities or the lack of between Rachel and Sarah, in the, the, the scene with Ferdinand where Rachel brings her cane up in between his legs, mm-hmm. it was reminiscent of the, the scene where Sarah was pretending to be Ferdinand and kind of like cluing in. Pretending t- to be Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a feat of acting by Tatiana's life. I don't doubt that she could do it, but... <laughs> Thank you. When she was uh-huh. pretending to be Rachel with Ferdinand. There and, you go. And she, I think, because I think she steps on his crotch in that scene, right? Right. Yeah. Right. She puts her foot there when he's on the sofa. Yes, yeah? exactly. It, it reminded me of that scene. And then the, because the little expression that Rachel makes right after she does that with her cane, she reminded me of Sarah in that moment. She does this little thing with her eyebrows like, oh my gosh, that was a little bit of Sarah coming through on Rachel's face. Hmm. I'll have to rewatch with that in mind. I mean, that it may have just been me, but I it was kind of a, a Sarah-like eyebrow quirk and smirk that she does. She didn't look as haughty as as she usually does. Hmm. I guess that makes sense, though. Like a a more relaxed Rachel might look a little bit more like Sarah. Yeah, she's a. I, I guess it's a more playful little little smirk there than which is not something we normally see from no, Rachel at all. Mm-mm. <laughs> There's too many things to talk about with Rachel. (laughs) There are, there are. Also, thinking of her scenes with Ferdinand, she has that line to him where Ferdinand's asking her, it sounds like you're becoming like a Neo. And she has that line about how controlling evolution is the ultimate power. So clearly, Rachel is motivated by her, her love and want of power in what she does here. But later on, when she's talking to Susan about her actions, Susan tells her, like, you are owned. And she replies, it's a legal distinction that I plan to change. So is is that also part of her motivation is she dislikes being an own cloned and this is a way that she could potentially become free? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. Just inherent in this quest for power, right? Because as long as that distinction stands, how much power can you really have? And and as, as Susan makes the point, though, that that really separates her from the rest of the clones because she seems motivated to get her freedom, but feels no compulsion to offer it to any of the other clones. Right. I mean, Rachel's all about power and power specifically for herself. For herself. So, yeah. Yeah. She, I think she relishes the fact that 
she was the clone who was raised self-aware and in the boardroom. And even if Evie Cho tries to say that power was not real, she still felt like she had it. And I think that's important to her. I don't know. I feel like this whole raising her self-aware just gave her a massive complex, basically. (laughs) Yes, I agree. But that scene between her and Susan, it escalates, I wouldn't say quickly. I think there's a good build to it where, you know, Susan says that she regrets making Rachel, but not real the other clone. She's like, I've gotten so much from the other clones, but I regret making you. I mean, I think we felt this confrontation coming, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. She, in more subtle ways, Susan has said that she prefers other clones to Rachel or, or sees things that she appreciates in other clones, but not Rachel. Even if she hasn't said them to Rachel's face, we knew this type of thing was coming. I mean, as soon as we saw her with both Sarah and Cosima, because she was much, much warmer towards both of them than she had been towards Rachel. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Yeah. But after Susan makes that comment to her, we see Rachel have, you know, a little vision, a little eye glitch, and she sees the decapitated swan and then literally stabs Susan in the stomach after metaphorically stabbing her in the back in the boardroom. But that was really interesting to me, the, the little decapitated swan glitch. Mm-hmm. But... There was that weird moment between Rachel and the messenger right before she went in to talk to Susan where he told her, you know, do not waver. Right. So, what? yeah, was that vision sent to her by presumably Westmoreland to encourage her to kill Susan? Like, what? That's certainly what it sounds like yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Because Susan had – because I think Rachel mentions to Susan that she's having – the visions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then that's what prompts Susan to comment, oh, you know where that I came from, or and make some vague comments regarding Westmoreland. Mm-hmm. It seems, it certainly seems like he's the one providing these visions. But yeah, why Westmoreland is getting involved in all this, why he sent the messenger to go talk to Susan, and what did he say to Susan? That's my big question. Yeah, because after that conversation... Susan clearly knew what Rachel had done, but she didn't seem like that. She thought that meant everything was all said and done for because I forget the line that she has exactly, but I think she said something to the effect of like, the board is not the fine, does not have the final say. This is not happening. Whatever you think you did. And that's when, you know, subsequently Rachel stabs her. I just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) These are like questions leading into season five. Like, I don't know. Susan brings up Westmoreland to Rachel. She's the one who reveals, well, not directly. We have to make so many qualifications when it comes to Orphan Black. <laughs> it is suggested that that Westmoreland made Rachel's eye. So then is he sending her the visions, as we asked? And then Susan makes a comment about him saying, about Westmoreland, saying that he's the man behind the curtain, which I took to mean... He's the one kind of with his ultimate finger on the direction of Neolution? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's Orphan Black. Like, I can't, I cannot confirm or deny anything. But yes, that is what it sounds like. Okay, we can say that for a future episode then if we want to talk about that. But Susan also (laughs) makes comments about him, about Westmoreland, saying he's getting capricious in his old age, losing his patience in natural selection. Yes. Which, if it's Westmoreland, then, like, really serious about the old age. (laughs) I mean, I was semi-joking before when I was talking about Rambaldi on Alias, but it looks like I was right. (laughs) 
So is he a long-lived person on Alias? Yes. Like, very. Like, longer than Westmoreland. Okay, wow. Okay. Like, the dude was from the Renaissance. (laughs) And Westmoreland's supposed to be from the Victorian era. What the heck? Okay, so we got an email from Stephen with the short emails as he signed this email. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he signed his email that way. Yes, thank you, Stephen. And Stephen said, just when I was starting to think of Rachel as, as part of the team, that definitely wasn't the kind of happy ending we're used to. But hey, there's a cure now, and Delphine is back. Also, I'm really shocked it actually did turn out to be P.T. Westmoreland. I hope they have a good explanation for that. And yeah, me too. What the heck? (laughs) We got a lot of feedback about Rachel. (laughs) We did. We did. We got an email from Laura saying, I do appreciate that Rachel went all big bad at the end of the season. You guys talked a bit in previous podcasts about hoping they didn't sand down her rough edges and make her like Helena. In the end, Rachel was more interested in power and ego than joining the clones she still feels superior to, and that seemed true to her character. I like that she wasn't one-note evil, that she showed signs of compassion, especially to Charlotte, but it wouldn't be believable if she joined forces with Clone Club or gave up her fight for power. Also, one more time for good measure, Delphine! (laughs) I really agree with everything that that Laura says here, and I especially like that they did give Rachel some time to become a bit more of a sympathetic figure. I think we did see her show real compassion to Charlotte, but now she's back to, okay, this is me. This is what I want. This is what I'm going after. And apparently what she is is a matricidal psychopath, we'll say from the title. But, but, and I have to point this out, she didn't actually kill Susan. Yes, which was And she patched up her wound after... Stabbing her. Yes. I thought that was fascinating. And then left her down... In the same room that Susan locked her up in. Right. Rachel was really into payback this episode. Yeah, Rachel's big on vengeance. <laughs> Newsflash, Rachel is big on vengeance. <laughs> because, okay, because think about it. She she left Susan in a wheelchair, in her old wheelchair, mm-hmm. in the room that Susan locked her up in. And then as I was thinking about the fight that she had with Sarah, where does she nail Sarah? She hits her above her eye. She stabs her in her leg. And I believe she hits her hand. Mm -hmm. Those are all of the places we've seen Rachel struggle with in terms of her mobility. She still walks with a limp. She has shown like some nerve damage in her hand where she has trouble, especially before, was having trouble manipulating things with her gross motor skills and fine motor skills, etc. And she lost her eye. Yep. Mm-hmm. At the hands of Sarah. At the so. hands of Sarah. So it's, she was she was really paying Sarah back for that pencil. Yep. And I must say, even though I still think Sarah was a dummy, we can start talking about Sarah now. Sarah, we love you, but you were a dummy. <laughs> what was your plan, Sarah? What was your plan, Sarah? <laughs> I On rewatch, I can I feel like I understand better why Sarah chose to run rather than to try and stab Rachel. Because Rachel is likely was not going to be able to chase her, even though Sarah had a bad leg. Rachel was not exactly going to be able to run after her and easily overcome her. Whereas if she tried to approach Rachel and stab her, she would get within arm's reach. And we could see that Rachel was clearly dangerous when within arm's reach of Sarah. Especially with that cane in her hand. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, there was some feedback we got that was like, how is it that Sarah couldn't fight off Rachel? But I mean, Rachel came up behind her and whacked her with a cane. In the head. Yeah, in the head. Yeah, that's really going to stun you. So a person, and especially once Rachel got her on the floor. 
Right. Like, they were pretty much evenly matched, because neither one of them are particularly, like, hand-to-hand combat type of people. Right. And yeah, I mean, Sarah, granted, is probably stronger than Rachel. But she was stunned by the initial blow to the head. Yeah, I mean, Sarah's lucky to be conscious still at that point. Because her her cane had a metal end to it, and that's, I'm pretty sure, what she hit her with. So that's that can be a pretty bad hit to the head, especially for people who are not accustomed to being hit in the head. And I mean, Sarah's <laughs> hard-headed, but still. <laughs> yeah, and, and Sarah's scrappy, but Rachel was enraged. And that can really give you quite a boost of strength when you are so motivated. Right. And in an earlier episode, Ira had pointed out that when Rachel is impassioned some of her her abilities get a little bit better. Yeah, so. her motor functions seem to improve. Yeah, yeah motor function. Thank you. Mm-hmm. On rewatch, I realized that this is the first season where we don't end on Sarah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, end of season one, we end with that image of your favorite, the slow motion Sarah <laughs> leaning out the window. <gasps> slow motion, why? <laughs> Screaming, Kira! Speaking of enraged. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, se- I forgive you, Orphan Black. <laughs> season two, we end on Sarah right after she sees Rudy. Season three, we end with her and Kira reunited in the snow in Iceland. But season four, we end on Rachel's face, and she's smiling as she hears the the knock at the door. Presumably a visit from Westmoreland. (laughs) I get chills thinking about that. Creeped out chills. I know. (laughs) Why do they have to have the classical music in, like, the creepy cleaning up the evidence scenes? Classical music is really quite lovely, but (laughs) but it seems to be used (laughs) for such upsetting scenes in television. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the music at the very end there, with the knock on the door and Rachel smiling, the music is is a chorus singing Amen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Come on. <laughs> but Sarah ends the season bleeding on a beach. Not not okay, show. No. And Mrs. S and Kira held at gunpoint by Ferdinand. Damn it, Ferdinand. And it just, it really felt like Sarah was playing catch-up in this episode. You know, she had to get intelligence from Crystal. She had to sort of get to where Cosima was when Cosima figured out the significance of the the cell growth rates. She was playing catch-up to, like, Rachel's plan. So she, uh, Rachel was really driving this episode. Sarah was in the backseat. I mean, indicated by the fact that we just spent, like, half an hour <laughs> talking about Rachel. <laughs> this is a first. Yeah, it really is. I'm kind of curious if this is setting up for the final season. I kind of hope not. I, yeah, I, I don't wouldn't want the same screen time split for the entire fifth season. Clearly, Rachel's getting set up as a as a major player for the final season, yeah. and I'm good with that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I feel like she probably should be the villain of season five, mm-hmm. or one of the major villains. But yeah, to to end the season for Sarah this way, you know, earlier Victor had made the comment about. Middle book syndrome. I'm. This is sort of like the big <laughs> cause for that feeling I, to me. Yeah, because ostensibly our hero of the story, even though we have many leads on this show, Sarah is the our hero that we follow. And we did mention in the short episode that we already released about this episode, like this in some way to me kind of mirrors that first season ending with, mm-hmm. you know, Kira. Like this is sort of 
along those same lines. But yeah, the fact that it doesn't, the episode doesn't end with that shot is sort of interesting and unnerving. It's very unnerving. But that was a fantastic way to end the episode. Like, honestly, that was a better ending to the episode than Sarah bleeding on the beach. (laughs) Right. (laughs) To then switch from that to that really quiet scene with Rachel. And that was a great ending. So kudos to that. But uh, but yeah, Sarah was not really up to whole, a whole lot in this episode, though she did do a clone swap. A great clone swap. <laughs> and it's one of those things, like, watching it the first time, I didn't immediately pick up on the fact that it was Sarah. As she was walking away, I was like, her hair doesn't look right. I was like, that looks like your wig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very good about their wig usage on this show. They I'm are. very impressed with them because they get the really, really good wigs for the main characters, like... You know, if it's just the character, they get like a really excellent quality wig, mm-hmm. and they then they get like a slightly worse quality wig <laughs> for a clone playing a different clone. Like you can tell that it's a different wig, mm-hmm. which kudos show. And I actually wonder because Catherine Alexandri has talked about the wigs before, and she's said that you know Tatiana she wears the best wigs, which makes sense. She's she's facing camera; it needs to look realistic. Catherine generally gets. A slightly less good wig. Right. Not that they don't love Catherine, but good wigs are freaking expensive. Well, and I mean, they usually take her out of the scene anyway. <laughs> exactly. I wonder, though, if when Tatiana is doing these clone swap scenes, if she wears Catherine's wig or if they have a whole other quality, like a step down from Catherine's wigs. Quality. I think they have said before that it is actually a different wig. Okay. And I think it is probably a step down mm-hmm. from Catherine's. If I were to guess, I don't actually know. Because the frugal person in me would just be like, wear Catherine's wig. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. But I do think it is important for the viewers, especially on rewatch, to, to be able to notice like, oh, that's not her real hair. That's clearly a wig she's wearing. Right. What's interesting to me, too, like once I knew it was Sarah, when I rewatched the episode, listening to her, like she does sound different. There's there's less upspeak from Sarah as Crystal than just Crystal. Though I do think that consistently Sarah is the clone who is really good at mimicking the way people speak. Mm-hmm. Like she's the best at doing that. And I think she does a pretty good job at Crystal's speech pattern. Yeah. But the- oh, absolutely. It's just, again, like I didn't pick up on it right. fully yeah. the first time. But then on rewatch, it's like, oh, no, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> now that I know it's there, I see it slash hear it. But while I, I think she did okay on the speech pattern, she did not do near enough duck lips. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> that was the thing that really gave her away to me on rewatch was the lack of duck lips when Sarah was pretending to be Cat Crystal. Yep, there you go. The lack of upspeak and duck lips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it until you brought it up the last time Crystal was in an episode, but watching this time, I was like, yeah, Crystal pretty much has permanent duck lips, doesn't she? She does. I think part of it, too, because there was in one of the After the Black episodes, Tatiana Mislati was talking about how how contoured she is as Crystal. It's like she's contoured to death or something, she said. (laughs) And you can tell, like, they they do, like, really, like, they make extra cheekbones (laughs) (laughs) with the makeup. And then I think she emphasizes it with the duck lips then. Mm -hmm. And it's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) But since we're already talking about Crystal... Let's talk about Crystal. (laughs) Let's do it some more, but let's talk about the real Crystal. (laughs) 
I loved Felix's description of her as she's doggedly wrong, but she gets results. I think that's just a great summation of Crystal as a character and kind of her role on the show thus far. Yeah, as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's completely accurate. <laughs> And so, okay, so they tried to induct Crystal into Clone Club, <laughs> but she resisted. I don't even know if she's actually in Clone Club or what the heck. <laughs> I, I don't know that anybody knows. <laughs> I'm not sure Crystal knows. Because, yeah, she's just like, I don't, you think this girl looks like me? <laughs> Yeah, we got a, a Facebook comment from Jim, who had written us before asking about, you know, do we think that Crystal will join Clone Club? And the comment he made after the finale was, I love how the writers play with our expectations. We expect Crystal to be shocked when she meets Sarah. But, so this is what you think I look like? This girl looks nothing like me. <laughs> I really have to like, if you could drag a comb through that hair, she's like a seven on a good day. And I've been told I'm a ten. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Jim concluded, I just love it. <laughs> there was an excellent gift set I saw on Tumblr that was paralleling or contrasting, or maybe it was just quotes. I think maybe it was just quotes now that I'm thinking about it. It was just text. Tony from season two with, you know, meeting Sarah and like, damn, we're hot or whatever it is Tony says. And then Crystal's yeah. just like, we look nothing alike. <laughs> I am way better looking than her. <laughs> So after she makes that comment about how Sarah's a seven on a good day, Sarah looks at Felix and says, seven? And Felix replies, she does have a point about your hair. And I, I think I said to my screen, she does have a point about your hair, Sarah. <laughs> you know, I have to take Sarah's side on this. <laughs> well, okay. Your hair looks kind of windblown. I think it's different. I feel like Sarah's looks purposefully uncombed. I don't feel that way about your hair. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thanks, I think. <laughs> no, Sarah's is worse than mine, but but still. It is. I it feel is. your pain, Sarah. <laughs> but all that stuff in the comic book store was just so delightful. Oh my god, the music in that scene. Oh my god, it was so good. I loved it so much. It was all, like, campy 60s spy movie music. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, when Felix first showed up to the safe house and was talking to, trying to, you know, get Sarah and S's attention as they were talking to Rachel, I was thinking, why is he wearing a suit? That seems kind of dressed up. But as, when they switched to that scene, I was like, that's why he's wearing a suit, because that's what <laughs> Felix would wear to a fake spy meeting. <laughs> it fits with the 60s spy aesthetic. Because he feels international intrigue lacks flair. <laughs> FYI, there is if you if you go to iTunes Radio, there's a station on there called Secret Agent mm -hmm. that I enjoy, and it was exactly like the stuff they had in that scene. It was it was great. Thank you for the tip. <laughs> so Crystal, as always, a lot of fun. The other things I want to gush about, I loved Crystal flirting with art. That was amazing. <laughs> Hello, you. You look nice. <laughs> And Art just kind of doesn't even know what to do with it. Thank you. Hi, Crystal. <laughs> Poor Art. And then I also love that scene they included where she was throwing a fit playing whatever zombie apocalypse game was Scott and Hell Wizard. <laughs> where she flicked one of the little game pieces in anger and frustration. Oh, Crystal. It made me think of Kira's little fit that she threw earlier in the season when she just dumped the whole game on the ground. But <laughs> I guess, thankfully... Crystal's fit was not as bad as our six-year-olds or seven-year-olds. 
Yeah. Seven, I think. At this point, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the show knows anymore. I also want to say it really looked for, that Josh Vokey was just having a blast in his scenes with Crystal, especially that, that one where they're playing the board game. He just, like, could not stop smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I also love that Hell Wizard's like, Kasima's in trouble and Sarah brings in a beautician. <laughs> hey, Crystal knows stuff. <laughs> She's wrong about it, but she knows stuff. <laughs> Well, she was right, though. I liked our art surprise, like, oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but then that was also before she got to the part about Estee Lauder. <laughs> Estee Lauder and the sweetest company called Neolution. <laughs> to wrap up about Crystal, let's, let's hear this comment that we got from Brad. Brad says, I thought it was a strong ending to the season. I enjoyed getting Crystal back and seeing how she comes so close and yet so, so far from figuring everything out. It's probably for the best that she doesn't believe Sarah looks like her. Crystal would tell everyone. <laughs> Which is why I'm like, I just, I'm still not sure if Crystal's actually in Clone Club or not. <laughs> I kind of think she's not. I think now she could meet with the Sarah and not, and just be like, oh, it's that person who thinks she's my clone, silly girl. But... <laughs> Right. But yeah, it doesn't feel like she really has bought into the whole clone conspiracy. Oh, there was another excellent thing I saw in Tumblr. Somebody compared Crystal's denial to Allison's mom's denial from last season. Mm. It's like, you think this girl is your clone? <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on to talking about our other Lita clones, I did want to talk a little bit about the remaining caster clone on the show, Ira, who kind of made me like him in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I read, like, I, I never disliked him, really. I was fairly neutral on him. Yeah, yeah. I think it was pretty easy to be kind of neutral about Ira, but... Squicky feelings about his relationship with Susan, but otherwise fairly neutral. That's fair. But he was, he was like a little bit, I don't know, endearing. I think it was the moment where he walked in on Rachel and Ferdinand and gets fixated on the fact that Ferdinand still has his socks on. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just in that moment, it made me really like him. That little comment he makes, he has his socks on. <laughs> I, I quoted him during the live tweet when the episode was on, because I like that line too. But he was just such a sucker in this episode. He gets tied up by Ferdinand. But I guess he's lucky, because Ferdinand does kill people. So could have been worse. I think that was the thing. Like, in this episode, he just seemed especially, like, innocent. Definitely. Poor guy just doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> no, I, he really just did not see Rachel's venomous side coming out to play again. He just did not see it coming. Because, yeah, he gets he gets tied to the bed, and uh, Felix walks in, and Ira's just like, this isn't what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, he gets used as bait, too. <laughs> Try to keep Sarah safe when she goes to Neolution Island to confront Susan. So he was just really a pawn in this episode. Poor Ira, I guess. But <laughs> I know. I don't know that it's up to like poor Ira status, but I, I don't know. Maybe a little bit. I love that interaction between him and Kira, too, where she's just so dubious of him. I'm like, bless you, Kira. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, who can blame her? Because... Rudy. Yeah, pointed a gun at her. Rudy was, like, probably her only major contact with another caster clone that I can think of anyway, mm -hmm. so. But I just love her. You had a brother with a scar. I'm nothing like my brothers. <laughs> and I can just see her go, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was thinking about it. Like, you kind of are, Iris. <laughs> at least a little bit, because, you know, the uh, slightly 
dubious relationship with your mother figure. I'm just saying. Common ground. And then I also want to talk about Evie Cho and her very abrupt death. It was. It was so abrupt. I'm not sure that, or I wasn't. I wasn't sure that that was what happened for a minute. It's like, wait, did did they just kill her? But apparently they did. Yeah, I think they even confirmed later in the episode that she had been killed. Via the maggot bot. Yeah, Susan's comment after that scene, my partner Susan, was, well, that escalated quickly. But I have a feeling they planned for that because they came armed with the legal document. But I think they figured there was a good chance she wouldn't be willing to sign it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he had the little thing that killed her right on hand. So very handy. Mm-hmm. It's possible he carries that around all the time, but I kind of doubt it. Who knows? But that death scene be- uh, between her and Van Leer, who was comforting her, was really interesting to me. And and this is what he was saying to her while she was dying. Technology is subject to natural selection, too. It changes and adapts. You're an engineer. You know that. You built it. Let it take you. So unnerving. This finale, man. There was just so much going on. <laughs> That that let it take you part just, <laughs> or is that just me? No, definitely the let it ch- take you was was chilling. I I agree with that. But it was still an oddly comforting way for her for him to try to usher her off as she was being poisoned to death. <sighs> so Kasima. Kasima, Oh, my little Kasima. Uh, poor Kasima gets locked in a room for much of the episode. Yes, she does. It, well, okay, let's let's start at the beginning because at first, you know, the first tiny little bit of the se- of the finale is like all happy because Kasima thinks that they found a cure. And- we should have known it was going to end badly. <laughs> oh, I knew it would. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I still, you know, had feelings and got a little a little emotional because she's, you know, she's telling Sarah and Mrs. S the good news via Skype or what have you. And she's like in the lab and she's crying because she's so excited and I just wanted to hug her but nobody was there to hug her. I'm like, somebody hug that girl! But then she (laughs) hugged Susan. She hugged Susan and Susan seemed kind of touched by it, which makes me dislike Susan for being such a dirty rat later (laughs) on. That's fair. You you did not deserve that hug from Cosima, Susan. It's so true. You know, we see Susan once again locking up Alita clone to control her. Mm. Yuck. Dirty rat. And, you know, trying to restart the Alita project, even though she knows that's not what her subjects want her to do. The people she would be making more of who are aware of what she did are like, no, don't do that. We tried to keep you from doing that before. But at the same time, like, she does seem to care about the clones in some way. She tries to send Cosima and Charlotte out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. So I just I felt very conflicted about Susan in this episode. Yeah. And at the same time, you're kind of like, we should have known that that's what she was going to do. Oh, yeah, of course. It surprised me not at all. Right. When we overheard her, but I did mentally think, oh, no. It's one of those things like, "Ah, I knew it, but you jerk. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How dare you? How dare you do that thing that we all kind of knew you were going to (laughs) do? I think there was, it's one of those things like, this is the problem with Susan that, like, there's that element of hope where it does seem like she genuinely cares. Because I think she does. But at the same time, she does too. 
she's not trustworthy. No. And the fact that she could lock Cosima up so easily, it's like, yes, she cares about them, but at the same time, they are still lab rats, in a sense, to her. They are her oncomice still. They're still owned. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Another thing, I, I, I did want to mention this, just since we're talking about Cosima and, and sending them off. Do we mm-hmm. think that Susan sent them off because the guy came to talk to her? That was my impression. Yeah. I mean, I still want to know what that conversation was that they had. Me too. Because I wasn't sure what exactly motivated her to do what she did. Because I really don't think Charlotte would have just come and gotten Kasima on her own. I really do think Susan told her to do that. Right. Even though we didn't see it on screen. But was it because of what Rachel did? Was it something else the messenger told her? What motivated her to send them away? Right. Because, like, who is that guy even? I know. I don't... I uh, He's not Westmoreland, clearly. Right. Because he was talking to Delphine about Westmoreland, mm-hmm. so... Or about him. Yes. Plus, he has a, a bit of an accent. I couldn't tell what kind, maybe German, that presumably Westmoreland wouldn't have since he was British, I believe. Hmm. But, yeah, who is that guy? I found the confrontation between Cosima and Susan very captivating, where... Susan was telling telling Kasima. I think it was after Kasima accused her of not not truly wanting to find a cure, and she's like, "Of course I do." And then she says, "We learn from our mistakes." And Kasima counters with, "You're going to keep making mistakes on people like me." And then she says, "That is the cost of what we do for progress." Yeah. I am I am frustrated with this because it's one of those things. Like from Susan's perspective, I can see where she's coming from mm-hmm. because clearly this is what. This is that whole, like, pure science kind of attitude, right? Like, this is a thing we need to find out, and we can do that by doing this thing, so that therefore makes it worth it. But that just, it's so reductive to think that way. It's interesting, because I feel like, in Susan's mind, she's probably, thinks she's thinking of the greater good. Like, what she's doing will lead to a better human being. Right. And so, therefore... The mistakes are worth it because she feels like her goal is an important and lofty and ultimately benevolent one. But she's not, she's ignoring that at the cost of the individual who is telling her, please don't do this to more people. This is terrible what you did to us. Mm-hmm. Ah, Orphan Black, why do you do this to me? <laughs> and we, I wanted to bring up, we several people have asked about the, the samples that they were working on mm-hmm. of the, the blastocysts, etc., and asking if Rachel really has some or if Cosima took all of them and Rachel was lying when she said that the – I forget what she says exactly on the video conference call, but that the science was secured. I was certainly under the impression that Cosima took everything. Okay. Here's what I have to contribute to the conversation, but I'm not saying I'd have a definitive answer. So at the beginning, when Cosima's like excitedly telling Susan the good news – we see about a dozen or so Petri dishes in that little holder thingy. I don't know what it's called. Forgive me. <laughs> and at the end of the episode, when Delphine like holds up that little box with the Petri dishes in it, there's only about three or four. I think there's just three. From what we see visually, we do not see Cosima with all of the Petri dishes. However, there's a lot of exceptions to this you know it could be not all of those dozen petri dishes at the beginning of the episode were the same type of material mm-hmm. there could have been other stuff in them also Cosima was carrying a bag so there could have been more petri dishes in the bag okay 
Kasima being Kasima, she, I feel like she would have tried to take all of them if she could have. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely see the possibility that Rachel might have been lying. Yeah, I mean, I have no evidence for my assumption here. This is just, I mean, I, I completely missed how many Petri dishes there were at the beginning. Like, I wasn't, wasn't thinking about it. So I don't know. I will take your word for it. So since we're talking about the cure, the potential cure, I'm still, we need to talk to, to somebody who's knowledgeable about science stuff because I need an explanation on how this is going to cure Kasima. Yes. <laughs> I am curious about that too. I, I guess it's the, I guess it's the same idea as like Kara's bone marrow, her stem cells, is that these are stem cells that could be used for a gene therapy. Okay. It's again, right? it's one of those things like I understand the concept of it leading to a cure. I don't understand how it itself is a cure because it sounded like it was maybe a cure in and of itself. And I, I'm fuzzy on the details is what I'm saying. And we should do another science episode. Yes. I will say Kasima is saying something in the beginning of the episode to Susan, I forget the word that she uses. It's a sciencey word. <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot! It's not the reflex. It's not. <laughs> it's not the. Oh, I don't remember. But she's she says something was completely effective or something to that extent. So it could be that what she took is not just the blastocyst, but something they have created from the blastocyst cells. It could be a cure in and of itself. I don't know, but I, I agree. We need to we need to hear from somebody sciency about how this is a potentially a cure for our clone sestras. If you're listening and you know stuff about this, <laughs> send us an email. You know, if you're interested in, in being on a future episode. We'd appreciate it because we are dummies when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. This is not our not our specialty. But somebody whose specialty it is. Segway. Delphine! Delphine! They you were reunited. Orphan Black did not let me down. I had I had said I was hoping for a happy Casima Delphine type of moment in this season finale, since we'd had two season finales with sad Casima Delphine stuff. <laughs> so there was a little bit of real happiness in this very dire finale. It was basically the only happiness in the dire finale. But that moment when they were all snuggled up in bed together and Delphine gave Cosima a little kiss and Cosima was like trying to kiss her back, but she was shivering too hard. Oh, so many emotions. Snuggled up and caught, you mean? <laughs> snuggled up in what? Caught. It looked like a cot, not a bed. Oh. I oh. tried to make a joke. <laughs> it's not working, I, apparently. <laughs> well, I, I the homophone entered my head and i thought you meant c-a-u-g-h-t and i was thinking well i guess yeah they are kind of <laughs> maybe prisoners too <laughs> snuggled up and captured <laughs> <laughs> but something that that did catch my attention was <laughs> the fact that as soon as Kasima and adelphine were reunited again we see this just almost inseparability in their relationship of of intimacy and medical treatments. Yep. Yep. 
So the scene starts and it's all slow-mo and it's going up Cosima's bare legs and then they're cutting off her shirt and, you know, taking off clothes. Could be sexy times, but nope, she's hypothermic and maybe dying. So no sexy times. But- I kid you not, the, <laughs> se- the scene starts and I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like intimacy and medical stuff. And and if people aren't aware, they didn't have Evelyn Brochu stripped down to her adorable and practical underwear <laughs> just for funsies, just because, you know, she's an attractive lady. That is an appropriate way to treat hypothermia. It is, and that is why they <laughs> cut Kazima's clothes off, which, yes, granted, seems a little... Uh, excessive? Okay, let's go with excessive. But yeah, I mean, if you're hypothermic, basically your clothes do nothing for you. Because your body's not generating its own heat. So, so yeah, you need somebody else's body heat. So, it's more important for you to have your skin to have direct contact with something warm. Right, right. Yeah. So, like Delphine, Delphine is warm. <laughs> if, if Delphine, if they were in a hospital, Delphine would not have done that. That would have been inappropriate. But, <laughs> but in, in the circumstances they were under, that was the best way to help with the hypothermia. Since they're on Neolution Island. Village. <laughs> the village on Neolution Island. There we go. Kazima <laughs> also that, had that line, you can shoot me up like old times. Like, yes, it is like old times. We're, we're back with the sexy medical treatments. Yep. More post-coital phlebotomy, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for that, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Dan, wasn't it? I can't remember who said that now, but it is, it is a great turn of phrase. So thank you to whomever said it. So what struck me also in that scene when they were trying to initially treat Cosima's hypothermia was that they they really seem to be roughing it, right? They're in these tents. They're kind of out in the wilderness. wilderness. They don't seem to have heat besides fires. And yet they had a very fancy thermometer that they used to take Cosima's temperature. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Because it was a digital thermometer. And it looked like one of those point-and-shoot dealies. Yeah, I think you those you just like touch to a person's forehead and it takes their temperature, which is very fancy. But again, like it's this idea that they're on they're on Neolution Island and they're like roughing it, <laughs> which seems mm-hmm. so counter to what we had seen otherwise on Neolution Island. And yeah. so, yeah, it's this this dichotomy of of all of that. What is up with this little village? Cuz we're also shown a flashback in this episode to what happened in the ap- aftermath of Delphine shooting? Well, I guess also re-showed us Delphine shooting with poor little Crystal there. And, oh, Crystal. And it was interesting to me when we're seeing Delphine being treated after she's been shot. If you look at what they're treating her with, it's le- it looks like herbs and things from jars. It does not look like a particularly... I don't want to say sophisticated because that sounds condescending, but it it does not look like the type of treatment she would have received had she been taken to a typical hospital. Yeah, it's not your standard Western medicine kind of kind exactly. of a thing. Yeah. So what does that mean exactly? That we see them using potentially herbal type medicines on Delphine's wound, but also this very modern looking thermometer to take Cosima's temperature. Again, this whole idea of the village on Neolution Island, like. I don't know, because apparently it sounds like Westmoreland is maybe part of this village. Maybe. He's certainly aware of it, and it seems like his messenger is there quite a bit. Right. And if that guy has lived for as long as they've indicated he's lived, clearly he knows something. (laughs) (laughs) 
or maybe maybe he's just got good genes. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm just saying maybe maybe there's some specific flora and fauna that lives on this island that is somehow mm. useful in their medical applications. I hmm. don't know. I'm throwing it out there. And it's also indicated that Evie sent Duco to shoot Delphine. So way to go, people who suspected it was Duco. Mm-hmm. Well done. But Westmoreland intervened and sent Van Leer, and he, Van Leer, was helped to spare Delphine. So what is Westmoreland's interest in Delphine exactly? Plus, there's that conversation that Delphine has with that guy who we don't know who he is. <laughs> I've just been calling him the messenger. Yes. It's true. <laughs> They have that conversation and she says something about something about altruism being counter to evolution. And then the messenger or whoever says something like his altruism saved you. And Delphine says that wasn't what it was. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> Is Delphine somehow related to Westmoreland? Do we think? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if because, he if he has some sort of vested interest in her, you know? Yeah, because it seems to me, unless Delphine is just super brilliant in some way that we don't know, he, meaning Westmoreland, has had access to some pretty darn smart people over the years. So why, if he just really wanted a doctor to come to Neolution Village, why, why Delphine? Yeah, what is his interest in Delphine? There's not anything readily apparent to me about why particularly her. Or was there some sort of experimental medical procedure that they did to save her? Like, was that what it was instead of altru- I, I just, I have questions. Because there are too many possible answers to this question, and I'm going to spend the next nine and a half months pondering them. <laughs> that whole conversation between Delphine and the messenger was very interesting. If you if you listen to what they're saying, just as Cosima is waking up, I think Delphine is asking the messenger, you know, oh, what is what does he think about what has happened? And the messenger says something like, oh, he's not happy about it. He's not pleased. And I'm not sure what they're talking about, if they're talking about the fact that Rachel did what she did, or if if they know that Rachel stabbed Susan Duncan. I don't see how they would know that at that moment, but who knows? If About the fact that Kasima escaped and is now in Neolution Village, you know, what exactly is he unhappy about? I certainly think there's an implication there that it's about Kasima. Yeah, I agree. Though, again, as as you say, like, it could be any of the other things, too, but... Given the way the rest of that conversation goes, I feel like it's probably about Kasima. Yeah, I feel like the most likely scenario is he is displeased that Kasima and Delphine are together again. Right. Because, yeah, they continue with, you know, they won't or he won't allow you to stay with her. No. I kind of half wonder <laughs> if they put that in there to excuse another possible absence by Evelyn Brochu because she's off doing X Company or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but. It's possible, it, but it would also be, it could also be a seed to a storyline involving them escaping right. the next right. season because she wants to be with Kasima. Like, maybe she's been okay-ish, <laughs> kind of being there by herself, but now that Kasima's there, she'd be more motivated to try to escape. Because mm-hmm. we were wondering, like, what are what were Delphine's circumstances on the island there? And so... While she doesn't exactly seem to be shackled, it seems like maybe she's not exactly free to leave either. Right. I was looking again, and and as she's emerging from that tent 
when Cosima first sees her, there is a guy with a shotgun standing right next to that entrance. Mm. Interesting. Or or a rifle. I shouldn't say shotgun. I'm not a gun person. A long gun of some kind. <laughs> a weapon. A firearm. Plus, I mean, there's the whole fact of if the other faction of Neolution thinks that Delphine's dead, it is actually probably safer for her to stay where she is for the time being. That's a good point. It might not matter as much now that Evie Cho is dead, but yeah, you make a good point. Right. I mean, that's what I'm attempting to get at. From what we saw before with, with Leaky and Rachel telling him, you know, leave the country and basically go hide yourself. And you might be able to stay alive. Yeah. Right. But I'm wondering what Delphine and Cosima's next move is. Because I think obviously we want Cosima to get better and a cure, but Delphine is saying, oh, it's not safe here. We have to be very careful. Don't tell anybody. So can they start administering a cure while they're still there? It seems difficult, if not impossible. Hmm. That's a good point. And I gotta say, I gotta say. Because <laughs> we got an email from Bali Gali, and she included some feedback that we're going to use in a in a future episode. Uh, but one of the things she she pointed out was that... I think she said Delphine is at her most attractive when she's like wearing no makeup and all of this stuff. And yes, Evelyn Brochu did look really good in this episode. But I actually think Delphine is at her very most attractive when she is standing up defiantly to authoritative men. She just <laughs> she gets this little glint in her eye and it's just like, ah, be still my heart. <laughs> I will not argue with you. Cause yeah. <laughs> and her hair was so cute and curly. <laughs> And I got to hand it to the show because and, and maybe they were able to film all of that section where Delphine got shot back last year when they were filming. It seems unlikely, though. It feels like they probably wouldn't have hired Gord Rand at that point to play Duke. Agreed. But maybe they just added him. in. now that I think about it, they didn't. I'm pretty sure some actually... of it was shot from different angles than we saw last season. Okay. So I think they did refilm at least most of that. Some of it. Yeah. But I got to say, they did a really good job of matching. Mm -hmm. Usually when they go back and refilm things, it's really obvious like, oh, they refilmed that. But they did a really good job with the matching. Maybe it was a location that they had handy, you know, was fairly easy to restage. So finally, let's let's check in on our our last lead of the clones, your precious murder angel (laughs) and the soccer mom. (sighs) I don't know. I was pleased to see Helena and the Hendrixes reunited. Oh, me too. I just wish there had been more. I understand why there's not. Ultimately, I'm okay with it. But at the same time, I I always want more, especially Helena, but also Helena and the Hendrixes. They were surprisingly lacking, given that this was a finale, but so much stuff was going on. And these storylines about Rachel and Cosima had been building up. It makes sense to me that the people who got the most screen time were Rachel and Sarah and Cosima and Crystal. Right. And I I'd mentioned in previous weeks that BBC America started doing that whole extended scene thing, which mm-hmm. seems really weird. Allison only appeared in the extended scene part. Wow. So that little bit where she's in the in the tent and she's saying, you know, I'll lay down my life for that sweet little thing. That was only an extended scene? Yes. Wow. I know. That was it. It was weird. Did it warm your heart a little bit, though, to hear Allison profess that she would do anything for Helena? Oh, absolutely. I also thought it was interesting. She was talking about how she feels like Helena cleansed their sins through fire by saving them from the cheek chopper. She's our avenging angel, which pleased me because I believe I've also been calling her that. (laughs) 
I also want to mention Helena looked very pregnant in that scene, but I think the camera angle might have been doing a little trick to the eyes. Did did you? Well, I think she was also doing like the Helena slouch. Yeah, she was slouching backward and the and the camera angle was kind of low. And I think it made her look more pregnant than she actually was supposed to be. Yeah. And I mean, they were just eating the, the stew. So she's probably like <laughs> post meal slumped. It's Helena, you know. <laughs> and she, I think she continues to look the most normal she has the entire series. Like, the redness around her eyes was very subdued, I thought, in this episode. Hmm. I'll have to look again. But that makes me that makes me kind of happy. Like, she's finding maybe some normalcy with the Hendrixes. Out in the woods <laughs> of yeah. Beaver Tail Park. <laughs> Speaking of, we got a, an email from Colleen asking, how is Helena keeping her phone charged in the wilderness? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Well, Maybe okay. she's got a generator? This is my headcanon right now. Because we saw her talking on the phone to Sarah last episode? Or two episodes ago? My timeline's fuzzy. I can't remember. But Sarah makes reference to the fact that Helena had not been answering her phone for a really long time. She just had so it turned head- off? She's yes. the only person in the planet who turns her phone off? <laughs> yes. So I, my thinking is that... Helena has had her phone mostly off. Like, she turned it on to send that text message to Sarah, or or maybe that was the last thing she did, and then she turned off her phone. Mm-hmm. So then she turns it back on, calls Sarah. And then, you know, once she figured out there was something going down at the Hendrix's house, she, you know, trots back into town, saves them, charges her phone, goes back to the wilderness. And maybe this time, Donnie and Allison have brought portable chargers with them. I would believe that. Yes. So that's my headcanon, Colleen. Hopefully that helps. <laughs> I mean, 100% sure that Allison and Donnie have portable chargers. Maybe they're even like neat solar powered ones so they can continually recharge the portable chargers out in the in the woods. I would believe it. Yeah. They seem to be gadgety persons. Maybe I'm wrong, but I could see them having nifty gadgets. I think they would. Nobody has a craft room that elaborate and is unprepared <laughs> for for a, a low battery on the phone. That is a really good points and they had the camping equipment because that was helena's like starting point to her little shelter she built was their tent right that she took so if they are campers even if they went once allison would have had them fully prepared you make a really good point i mean you've seen the stock that they keep in their garage Mm-hmm. like just regular stuff like clearly they shop at, at costco or the equivalent you know they're prepared at this point, they're probably wishing they brought some of those bulk goods because I don't. <laughs> Poor Allison's having intestinal distress. Donnie's eating deer intestines. <laughs> and then is distressed about that. Yes. A different kind of intestinal distress. <laughs> I love the phone call between Sarah and Allison when Sarah asked her to make sure Helena doesn't eat any raw meat. <laughs> I was like, oh, Sarah's looking after her sister still. Uh, the whole thing's just oddly heartwarming. <laughs> Helena's feeding him, but it's intestines, but it's fine. <laughs> it won't hurt you. It's just not, you know, something you're used to eating. Right, right. I mean, it, it is it's totally edible, but it's just, I, I keep thinking, like, the fact that Donnie didn't know until Helena told him means that she probably cleaned it pretty well. So, so you're okay, Donnie. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> We also got a message from Greg. He says, I liked the finale and didn't even mind the cliffhangers. I do agree with you that I think we could have gotten more episodes, but they do have 10 episode seasons and it's really just story. 
I would have liked to see Allison and Helena more in action, but because of the limitations, I think the writers just ran out of time. Still, it was a great finale, and I, and I can't wait till the finale season next year. So just a couple of stray thoughts to wrap up here. I, I liked the exchange between... It was, I think it was Mrs. S and Sarah, really. Uh, but uh, Sarah is, is uh, talking to Van Leer and questioning him. And Sarah says, Neil Lucian has a board. And Mrs. S says, there's always a bloody board. <laughs> I just love that line. <laughs> it is. It's good. I quoted that during the live tweet, too. Yeah. There was, also was not enough Mrs. S for me in this episode. It's true. As well as enough Kira. Right. Like, I understand why Sarah left Mrs. S behind, but... They are not listening to our podcast, Chris. Did we not just talk about the importance of the buddy system? I know. You always take backup. Clearly, Sarah has not watched Veronica Mars either. This is what Sarah needs. She needs herself a big protective pit bull that she can just take places with. Yeah. Her. Yeah. I think I missed a word in that sentence, but you get my meaning. I understood. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, I just... Come on, you guys. I, I just, I did, I feel like Sarah's plan was like really poorly thought out. I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I get what you're going for here. And I really, really liked the part where Sarah was talking about how basically feeling like it's her job to protect her sisters because she's immune. And if they don't get this fixed, she, you know, it's her curse to watch her sisters die. I thought that was a really good exchange between her and Mrs. S. Yeah. And I appreciate that Mrs. S like got that, you know. It makes me happy that Sarah actually said it aloud because I think it's something that we've assumed, but it was it was nice to hear her say it aloud to Mrs. S. And I don't know, not that not that she had to say it. I think we knew it, but it was nice to hear her say it. Right. I mean, because we've seen her be protective sister to Helena, but I think it is nice to sort of explicitly state that it's not just about Helena; it's it's about all of them, and that she does feel that obligation and that duty toward them. I meant to say this last episode, but again, this episode, I just think Cosima and Charlotte are really cute together. I liked their little exchange where Cosima said, uh, and Charlotte said, swears. <laughs> <laughs> what I loved about that is it followed the exchange between, you know, when they're on the call with, with Cosima, with um, uh -huh. Sarah and Mrs. S and Kira, because Sarah just like lets out a holy sh I think it was. But like Kira was right there and nobody nobody batted an eye, you know? <laughs> like it was just completely accepted that that there was swearing and then following that up with Charlotte sort of scolding Kasima for swears. I liked it. <laughs> So thank you to everybody who sent in feedback for us. Uh, if you didn't hear yours included in this episode, please don't feel slighted. We're we're saving some of it for our season review episode. Which we, we plan to be our next episode. That is the plan, at least at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what? No. It Things could come up. We could score an interview with some Ankomice. You never know, Chris. <laughs> that would take precedence. That's fair. That's fair. But our, our plan is for our next episode to be the season review. And if you have more thoughts that you'd like to send in, if you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't get my thoughts about the finale in, send us your thoughts about something you thought about this season. We'd love to include it in our season review episode. You can send us feedback in a bunch of ways. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 110. Send email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. 
or you can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us or call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we're also on Facebook. Tatiana is everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts for, for Lost Girl and Killjoys and a couple of other shows over at AskGenreTV.com. And in this episode, Swears were played by Tatiana <laughs> Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs>